We're going to start and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We went through the Gospels last week, didn't we? The four accounts of the same Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we looked at the similarities, the differences, and then pointed out some highlights through there, of which there are too many to really point out, obviously, in one sermon. Um, You could work on that for the rest of your life. And here's another block of books that you could work on for the rest of your life, too, because you can't go from Acts to First and Second Thessalonians in one lesson and do it justice. So what we're doing is going from Acts to First and Second Thessalonians and hitting highlights. And I'm hoping that you go back later on and look at the other things that, that Acts through First and Second Thessalonians really has to offer, because there's a lot in there, obviously. And we're going to start off with the book of Acts. The book of Acts. And for that, if you don't have your papers yet, Ty's still going around giving papers out so you can follow along. For that, my first symbol in that first square for Acts is that. Because at the very beginning of Acts, what does Jesus do? He, he goes back. Yeah, he goes back. He, he says a couple things to his disciples. He tells them, hey, don't worry about the times. That's, that's not for you to decide. What you need to do is you need to go back to Jerusalem. You need to wait. You need to do what I'm asking you to do. And Jesus goes back. And this is the second account that Luke is writing. And, and in fact, all this excitement, I skipped what I wanted to say about the last lesson. Because Sunday night, we, we get back together and, and we talked about our Sunday morning lesson. And Bill pointed out something that... and. You know, but most of the time, uh, at least for me, I have been saying this over and over again for years, but it's wrong. You remember what I started off with last week? We went from Malachi to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what did I talk about in between there? 400 years of silence. That's, That's what they always call it. That's what I've always called it. But like Bill pointed out last, last Sunday night, it's not 400 years of silence, is it? God has been speaking. God was still speaking. And God is always speaking. In fact, what was happening in those 400 years is not nothing. The things that we looked at in Daniel, those things are happening. The, 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 the cities, the, the governing powers of the world, all of that stuff is still happening. What God has already said is, is going on. And I want to thank Bill again for, for pointing that out because calling it 400 years of silence is just plain wrong because he's still speaking. It might not be the same way that he spoke before, but there is still God communicating to his people throughout time. In fact, that's why we're at the point in history that we are in Acts and the, the, the world power that's in power in Acts. And I think Rome plays a part in God's ultimate plan to get his gospel out there. It's, there's, there's a reason why God orchestrated events the way he did. There's a reason why Rome comes to power when it does. There's a reason why these things happen. Even though Rome ends up persecuting Christians, God uses that evil for good. He uses that evil to spread the gospel message throughout the entire world. So as evil as it could be, construed to be, it was essential in God's plan. And that 400 years of silence, to which I will never refer to again unless I accidentally slip. 
It's not going to be 400 years of silence anymore. It's just a 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew that God is still working and still speaking, just like he always has and he always will. That's, of course, a longer title, so you have to find something shorter for that. But here we are after these 400 years of God speaking and things coming to fruition and God orchestrating his plan to bring about his redemptive, his redemptive principle that he's been orchestrating throughout history to fruition. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happen. Peace on earth. The personification of peace has come to earth. He has died for our sins. At the end of Luke, he's opening their minds to understand the scriptures about him. It says that in chapter 24, he's opening their minds so that they understand the things that he's saying. He's saying, all these things have been written about me. Let me open your minds to that. And in 24 and then Acts 1, we see a Savior who has completed his mission on earth and is now going back to the Father. Now going back to heaven. So here is that first square. Jesus goes up. Notice through from Acts to First and Second Thessalonians, the gospel moving and shaking throughout history. And here is the beginning of that for the body on earth here. Jesus goes back up at the beginning of Acts. And the disciples go to Jerusalem and they wait. And then what happens? As they're sitting there waiting. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes down like tongues of fire. Looks like tongues of fire. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind, all of this stuff that that draws people to them. And then Peter speaks that, Peter and the rest of the apostles are speaking that, that first gospel sermon there, the day of Pentecost. I want to turn over there just just briefly, Acts chapter 2, after he's gone through the gospel message. And you can see the gospel message in this sermon and many others that, that, that are in the Bible here. And when he gets done saying, you know, you've crucified him. You've put him to death. He's the one that God sent down. You put him to death. It's not David there. It's, it's, it's God. It's verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. Cut to the heart. Have you ever been pierced to the heart? Have you ever had that moment where it just... It just hits you right there and you can feel it. It's not just a, not just a, I mean, it is is something palpable. You can feel that, that heaviness in your chest, that, oh, yeah. This is that thing happening to these people who have understood the message that Peter has been speaking to them. And they ask him that question, what do we do? What do we do now that we understand? I, I know, okay, I put him to death. I've rejected the Messiah. Now what do I do? And he says to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, again, he goes on like a preacher does, right? He doesn't stop there. He keeps going on. Many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And that perverse generation is still here today. Be saved from this perverse generation is the cry even today. And with many other words, he goes out there and says that. And then they received the word. Many of them received the word, were baptized, and they were added that day. 3,000 souls. Man, what an awesome day. So Jesus goes up and the Spirit comes down. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down. He, He 
draws everybody's attention. And then through the preaching of Peter and the apostles there, they're understanding what's going on. The gospel sermon is preached. The gospel sermon is received. And they become a part of this, this, this movement. God breaking into the scene here and the church breaking into human history here. And they grow stronger, don't they? they? They get together, they grow stronger, they're in everybody's houses, they're eating together, they're praying together, they're learning together. What's interesting is they, they have a great time together. And they're sharing together, and they're, they're taking care of each other. But what happens in chapter 6? There's a problem, isn't there? Just like anything, you get together with a bunch of human beings, no matter how sweet it is for a little while, right around that corner, there's something going to happen. Because we're human beings, and we either offend each other, hurt each other, not, by, um, not on purpose sometimes, but by accident sometimes. Or we just, we just, we're selfish people, things happen, we, we're human beings. So, boom, you see that in the church here immediately almost, after all of this goodwill and this stuff. But that doesn't stop the church, because they do get together, they figure out what's going on, they figure out how to take care of these Grecian widows, and they move on. But for a while, there's a problem here. And then right after that, you've got the first martyr, Stephen. You've got Stephen, who is martyred. And you've got Saul, who is helping out. Not only just helping out, man, he's a, he's a pinnacle, pinnacle person in that, in that death of Stephen. He is, he is definitely responsible for the death of Stephen. He is doing what he thinks God is calling him to do right then and there. Stephen is martyred. And the church right now is not moving. God told them to go to Jerusalem to where? Jerusalem? Where next? And where? Judea? Samaria? Well, yeah. Why stop there? <laughs> Why stop there? Let's go everywhere. Let's go everywhere. But where are we going right now? We're going pretty much nowhere right now. Not, not much spreading is happening. And God is going to get His people moving. God's going to get His gospel moving. Stephen is martyred. And Paul, or excuse me, Saul at this time, not Paul. Saul is persecuting the church. He's locking people up in prison, throwing them, throwing them in prison, and even having people killed, like Stephen, killed. But that doesn't last for long either, because as Saul is moving to another place to do the very same thing, who meets him along the way? The road to Damascus. The Lord himself knocks him off his horse and says, what in the world are you doing? You better rethink your ways. And Paul says, okay. After being met with Jesus Christ, I think you would say okay. In fact, Paul himself, that's probably the only guy that, Jesus was the only guy that could probably reach that man. With how zealous he was, how zealous he was for God's cause, I think Jesus was the only person that could actually change that man's mind. Peter wouldn't have changed his mind. None of the apostles probably would have changed his mind. Jesus himself changed that man's mind. And from that point on, Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and now the church is going out. So for your first box there, for Acts, because there's tons of things in Acts. We can't touch them all. This is, this is the Acts of the Apostles. This is, this is the, the church moving and, and shaking in the first century. This is, this is real life, real time events happening in the body of Christ. But Jesus going up, the Spirit coming down, and the church going out is a simple way to remember the book of Acts. Up, down, out. Now... Jesus has gone up. He's with us. The Spirit has, has come down. There's a good question for us. How much do we go out? Do we still go out? Like the book of Acts. 
going out. So from Acts, could you erase that for me, Ty? From Acts, you go to the next book, the book of Romans. This is one of my favorite books. I'll have to let you know. This, this Romans is one of my favorite books. I had someone tell me a long time ago that if you get Romans, God gets you. If you understand Romans, God's going to get you because Paul's, Paul's epic piece here is just, it's amazing. Uh, what did I, okay, yes. And for this, I drew this. Romans, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll be doing autographs later. First edition prints available if he doesn't erase them. This is my favorite book. And you, you go through this book, and again, it's impossible to do it justice, but man, the pinnacle of this book, the, the way he breaks it down, the the first twelve or first eleven chapters are really you know, a lot of theology dealing with righteousness, dealing with, with Israel's past rejection in nine, Israel's present rejection in ten, and then the future restoration of Israel in eleven. All of this theology, all of these these deep subjects, and then in twelve on, you see Paul saying, "Okay, well, this is how you take this this theology, this these deep subjects about God, and this is how you put it into practice. This is how you do this." And he, and he leads off with that in chapter 12, you know, that don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your I'm urging you to live this way because you know these things, because you understand these things, because you've been washed in the blood of Christ. This is how you live. And let me urge you to live this way. And I think in Romans, the theme of Romans is really to stop a church from splitting. I think there's a problem in Roman church. I think if you read that and, and you see that there, there's these Gentiles and these Jews that are having problems getting along with each other. You see in Acts 18 where there was this edict to leave Rome. And the fact that there's a, there's a church there and, and all of this, this division between people because of who we are and where we come from. And because I'm a Jew and I have this history, I'm better than you. And because I'm a Gentile, I don't have to do this or, or I, you, you can't be better than me because I'm a... We're all the same in Christ. No, we're not. Yes, we are. That's what Paul is saying, I think, in a lot of Romans, is you can't count on the fact that you're just a Jew to get you to heaven. That doesn't, that doesn't work. You can't count on the fact that you're a Gentile to get you to heaven. You've got to count on the blood of Christ. Amen. And that makes us all equal. Amen. No matter where you come from. doesn't matter who you are, what station in life you are. It's all the same. Paul deals with a lot of common things in here, and I wrote down some of the ones that I saw when I go through it. I see righteousness being dealt with here. I see the law, legalism. Grace, works, and sin. And, and in the center of this, when you break down the center of this, why I think this is, again, dealing with a, a church that could split, that is having some problems because of the makeup of the church, and learning how to get along with, the, with each other in the body of Christ, is at the center of this book is the family of God. He's saying this is the family of God. You are part of the family of God. You are one family. Get used to it. If you don't like your brother next to you, I'm sorry. You've got to learn to love him. You've got to learn to love her because you're going to spend all eternity with him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you come from. You've got to love each other because you're in Christ. Go ahead and erase that for me, Ty. Well, we go from that beautiful book, that eloquent book, that, that breaks down again 
this life in Christ and the theology behind all of this stuff that, that Paul is saying. And we go to First and Second Corinthians. And for this, I drew... This is a, yeah, exactly, a column. If it, yeah, it kind of looks like a, a Corinthian column, you know, a Corinthian column. This is the first and second Corinthians, another good book, but another, another look inside what's going on in the church right then and there. And a look inside of the people's lives at the time, and boy, things weren't all roses and and good stuff happened. There was a lot of real down-to-earth problems there. But Paul talks about uh, the problems that Chloe's people reported to him in one ten through 4.21. He talks about things that Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaeus talks to him about. Immorality, church discipline, lawsuits, morality. How many of you would like to, uh, to worship at the church of Corinth? Now, the, 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 the Corinth name is, was synonymous with debauchery. That was a tough place. It was a, it was a, it was a huge center at the time of trade and all of this stuff. A lot of people coming in and out of there. That'd be a tough place to be a Christian. Now, here's a tough place to be. This world today is a tough place to be a Christian, too. We got a lot of debauchery in this world. And they had a lot of debauchery in their world. No, almost no different. He deals with all of these things with marriage, Christian liberty, propriety in worship, communion, spiritual gifts, resurrection, money for the saints. He talks about his travel plans, where he wants to go, who he wants to visit. But again, this is another glimpse inside the body of Christ as they're they brand new, as they're moving, as they're growing the problems that they're having. Shortly after writing 1 Corinthians, he writes 2 Corinthians, and he's looking partially for a response to his first letter. Because in his first letter, he writes about something very difficult there in the very beginning about a relationship that is pretty illicit, and he says, not even the Gentiles would be doing this. This doesn't happen, especially in the body of Christ. This doesn't happen. You don't take your, your mother-in-laws or your fa- mother-in-law. Exactly. You don't take that. <laughs> you don't do that. It's not done here. And he says that. He says, I'm so glad that that, that that caused you godly sorrow. Another glimpse inside the body of Christ that I'm checking up on you now. How are you doing? How are you doing with this tough message I sent you? With all the questions you sent me, with all the answers I gave to you about marriage, with all these things, about taking your brother to court, about lawsuits, all of these things. How are you doing? And Paul has pricked the hearts of those saints there in Corinth. And they have decided... To do the right thing. And I want you to look over in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. As I think in 2 Corinthians 4, for me, I get a glimpse of something that, that if you take the two letters together and you look at what Paul is saying, he's saying, there's something here you're missing. And there's something I've been missing and, and something maybe you've been missing about our God. In verse 18. After he says, you know, our outer man is decaying, take heart, don't lose heart. You know, momentary light affliction, you're going to have problems here. But the problems here are far, beyond, are far outweighed by all of the glory that's awaiting us in, eternal, in eternity. Verse 18, while we look at not things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's right. 
If you want to understand the visible and you get the highest and want to get the highest good from things that are seen, you must be able to see and take a good look at the things that are unseen. Do you see what I'm saying there? If I want to, if I want to have the best relationship with my wife, the things that are seen, I need to understand the things that are not seen. Because if I don't understand the things that are not seen, the things that are seen, I'm going to take way out of context. I'm going to push them past the limits that God wants me to push them past. I'm going to take all the good that he's made for me and use it to my good. And I'm going to, I'm going to do exactly what that, that young man in the first letter did. I'm going to follow the desires of my heart. If I understand the things that are not seen, the desires of my heart are not what I should be following. And I think in, in 2 Corinthians 4, he gives us a glimpse into this is what you should be looking at. The things that are not seen. Understand those. You understand, begin to understand the things that are not seen. Then you can use the things that are seen for good. But if you don't understand the not seen things, the good things, the, the seen things are going to become a stumbling block to you. And I wonder too if, if, he, if he's saying, you know, if, if you could understand these things, would the questions you wrote to me be different? With the response I've been writing to you, would that be different if we're talking to people who understand the things that are not seen? Which is not an easy thing to understand, obviously. Because it's so easy to understand, or I think it's so easy to understand the things that are seen. I relate to it so much easier. I can desire, I can, I can go ahead and erase that. I can, I can satisfy the flesh. I can do that so easily. But that's not what this life is about. This life is about the things that are not seen. Versus the things that are seen. So we go from Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians to Galatians. And here in Galatians, this is what I use. Oh, man. Maybe not. There we go. This is what I use for Galatians. Faith. Faith. The cross is the basis for our justification, and faith is the means for our justification. And in, and in Galatians, Paul is writing almost a mini Romans almost, and he's talking about these law versus grace issues. It's a very deep book, very short book, but a very deep book. And he once again defends his apostleship, who he is, who he's called to be, and who God has called him to be. Defends his apostleship and re reminds them in the first chapter about this, this gospel that they have clung to, that they are now abandoning and remarking how quickly they have abandoned that. How quickly you have. How, why are you being bewitched by these things? Why are you being taken away by these things? Again, maybe a little bit of the seen and unseen here. What I, what I like about this is... Um, yeah, could you erase that for me, Ty? I want to write down something really quick. When you, when you look at the book of Galatians, and you look at it as a whole, I like the way it's broken down, at least the way, way I think it's broken down. Again, in that, that chaotic structure, you've got the prologue, obviously, and the ending. But right at the beginning, you've got two ways. Two ways. Paul's two ways, before and after Jesus... He describes himself. This is me before Jesus, and this is me after Jesus. These two ways. Right before the ending, there's also two ways. And he describes 
the ways of the flesh and the ways of the spirit. So he's contrasting these two ways. This is me before Christ. This is me after Christ. And then he contrasts right before the end of the letter. This is the way of the flesh and this is the way of the spirit. And they're not the same. Two distinct ways. Right in between that, you have two arguments from Scripture. And he uses Old Testament Scripture to make points, to, uh, to drive home the message with an illustration. He makes two, two of those. The very first one, he's talking about Abraham, and then the second one, he's talking about Sarah and Hagar. But two arguments right there in the middle about Scripture. This is, this is, this is what it's all about. And right in the middle of all of that, Right at the pinnacle of the letter is him saying, you've been redeemed. Yeah. By Christ. Right in the middle of that letter is redemption in Christ. Faith in Christ. And you see how this, this letter is structured to get you to understand this is, this is about Christ. This is his gospel. This is his message. Don't leave it. Look at me before Christ. Look at me after Christ. Look at the ways of the flesh. Look at the ways of the spirit. And look at these two arguments from Old Testament scripture that drive you to understand the redemption that you have in Jesus Christ. That comes from that faith that you have and that faith that he talks about in Romans there. So you go from Galatians. Go ahead and raise that for me, time. To another awesome book, Ephesians. Now, Ephesians, argues, uh, scholars will argue about the, the actual addressing to that letter because the letter doesn't always have to the Ephesians in the original letters. Some say it's just a circular, circular letter. And that, that doesn't, doesn't change anything for me. Even if it's just a circular letter, it's, an, it's, an, it's a very good letter. But this is what I draw for Ephesians. This is found around Ephesus, many different places. Do you guys know what that is? No? This is, you, you guys have seen the, the, the fish, right? Okay. The Jesus fish. This was also an ancient Christian symbol. This is actually, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, because everything here, this is your eye. This is your X, obviously. This whole thing with the line through it, right there. This is your Y. And then this here is this. Those symbols all in there. First letter is, first, na- first letter of Jesus' name in Greek. This. This is the first letter of uh, Jesus for Christ. This here is God, Greek term for God. This here is Jesus' name, first letter, Jesus' name. And then this is Savior. This is all throughout, well, a couple places in Ephesus. They say this is an ancient Christian symbol. They'd understand what this means. Nobody else, everybody else would think it's just a wagon wheel looking thing. But this is, this is not just a wagon wheel. This is a symbol for Christians. For, you know that Christians meet here. You know that you have a brother or sister around somewhere when you see that symbol. And in this, when you look at that symbol and you look at the, the letter of Ephesus, uh, letter of Ephesians, 
perhaps written to Ephesus, but also written to everybody by, by extension. You see in the very beginning of that chapter, chapter 1, the historical realization of God's redemptive plan. The first, first 14 verses, you want to see how God's plan plays throughout history? That's the first chapter of Ephesians. Paul lets you in on this, this great, quote-unquote, mystery that in times past was hidden. Now, there's a distinction there in, in when he's writing to these people here that the Greek gods kept their mysteries mysterious. But God is saying, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to let you in on this mystery. Let me let you in on this mystery. Come and, come and be a part of this mystery. And in Ephesians, Paul has some four-part emphasis, I think, in that book. He has one emphasis on Christ. He has an emphasis on unity. He has an emphasis on church and an emphasis, emphasis on spiritual powers. The powers of, of darkness and all these things in, in chapter 6 and the, the armor of God and all of that. That also plays into chapter 4 where you see the basic fundamentals of unity. We can make unity so difficult, can't we? Yeah. We, can, we can put all sorts of things on unity. You don't exactly look just like me. We can't be unified. In chapter 4, he gives you the four basics of unity. Chapter 4, 1 through 3 are the attitudes of unity. Chapter 4, 6, he gives you the absolutes of unity. These things we do have to have in common. There is one God, right? One, 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 one. There's a lot of ones. You add anything to one, you no longer have one. You take away anything from one, you no longer have one. These, these, are, these are fundamentals of unity. In 7 through 11, you have the agents of unity. And in 12 through 16, you have Paul's call to advance towards unity. Go for that unity. Again, this is a glimpse into the early Christian's life. What, what are they struggling with? Well, how do we be, remain unified? What are you struggling with? I don't understand God's redemptive plan throughout history. Let me let you in on the mystery. This is the mystery. Gentiles are now a part of all of this thing. He's broken down the barrier. He's broken down the wall. It's, again, a book full of mysteries that are now revealed. And again, when you do that, that kinetic structure of that book, when you look at the very center of that book, I think he's calling for unity again. In the very center, 4, 1 through 16, is that unity call. He wants unity in the body of Christ in the book of Ephesians. Go ahead and erase that time. And now we're on to Philippians. I'm going to try to get you through. Yes, Philippians. Here again is a glimpse into the early church. And in Philippians, here's... Bet you can't tell what that is. What is that? <laughs> it kind of looks like a cloud, but it's a, it's a very poorly rendered brain. Yeah, two halves, right? Right, left, two halves. You can see it now, right? Okay. Anyway, I'm not a surgeon. I don't know what a brain really looks like. That's a brain. Paul in, in Philippians, this brain, this joy of knowing Christ. Again, again, the center of, of Philippians, again, is, is, is fundamentally fellowship and unity. But the four chapters I broke down in, in Philippians is Christ my life, Christ my mind, Christ my goal, and Christ my strength. 
This is a military city where you'd have special privileges. And Paul is reminding them, uh, the special privileges you really have are in Christ. Not in Rome or being in a, a satellite of Rome, but in Christ you have these special privileges. He should be your, your life, your mind, your goal, and your strength. Everything. You set aside all these things and you put your mind on him. You focus on him. Again, a call for unity, a call for fellowship, and a call to put Christ first in your life. And that's also Paul's first prison letter as he gets into, into going to jail for the gospel. We get to our last two books here. It's First and Second Thessalonians. And here, I have to remember how that goes. I wrote this. This, this should be very familiar to a lot of you. Right? You guys seen this on bumper stickers? Around the coexist. Yes, we can coexist. I'm not going to kill you because you're not a Christian. But I'm sorry, there is one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's last in this word. And Paul, I think, had a problem or was, was having a problem with, not only in, in uh, another book about syncretism, but here in, in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, first thing, I'm sorry, Colossians. Not Colossians, first, first and second Colossians. First and second Colossians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Acts, then Romans. No, Colossians. Not first and second Thessalonians, Colossians. He has a problem here with this syncretism. He's saying you're adding things to God. You're adding things to Christ. You're adding angel worship. You're adding asceticism. You're adding all of these things. And they might look good to the outside. They might seem spiritual, but in reality, they're not. They're not spiritual. They're not spiritual at all. They're putting Christ last when they're trying to put, it should be putting him first. You add anything to that one, again, what do you have? You have more than one. You don't have the one that you need. And in this book, Paul uses several words. He uses, again, the word mystery. He uses, the, the, he tells us that the mystery is no longer hidden, two, two. He uses the word all things over and over again. Nothing left out that Jesus is overall in one eighteen that he's the fullness of God in two nine, and that he's sufficient, mystery, all things sufficient. Jesus plus nothing equals what everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. You don't take anything away from Jesus. You don't add asceticism. You don't add angel worship. You don't add visions that you've seen. You just have Jesus alone. That's what you need. That's a countercultural message back then, and it's a countercultural message today. You want to take a little bit of everything and, and add it to Jesus and make your religion nice and squishy, maybe. Or, or it just sounds good. It makes sense to my human mind that I add this. But God is saying, no, you don't add this. You don't add this to Jesus. Jesus is all you need. That's everything you need. Okay, Ty, go ahead and erase that. Sorry, now we're at first, Thess- first second Thessalonians. Just jumping ahead there. After he's written there and he's saying, you don't need anything but Jesus. He's writing to a church that is, that is struggling a little. Although their message of the gospel has gone way out, hasn't it? Their influence has gone way out and they've heard about it. They've heard about this church. 
But this church is, is having problems with some people expecting this great return. In fact, the first book of First Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a section on the second coming of Christ. Every chapter ends with that. There's, there's a theme in that of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul keeps driving that home. He's, he's coming. He's coming. He's, he's right around the corner, but you, you still don't stop working. You still don't stop doing because he's coming. In fact, I think one of the two big messages from the first letter is that the church that received the gospel must pass on the gospel. And you see that exemplified in, in Thessalonians. He says, your example has gone out. They've heard about you. We've heard about your, your, your message. Number two, the church or the person that passes on the gospel has to embody the gospel. And I think those are messages that he's driving home there, in First Thessalonians especially. If you got it, you've got to pass it on. And if you're passing it on, what do you have to do? You have to live it. You have to live the gospel in order to pass on the gospel. And you live the gospel by not just sitting around and waiting for the gospel to finish, for Christ to come back. And that, where Second Thessalonians comes in, he writes and he checks up on the people that he's, that he's written to before, and he's, he's giving them encouragement to hold fast, keep going, keep going on. And I think there's three main points in Second Thessalonians. He's telling them, you've you got to be, be steadfast under this persecution, this opposition that's going to happen. And again, that, that eternal weight of glory is going to, going to outshine it. But you've got to be steadfast under this. The second issue is, is that second coming again and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin that they're looking for. And then number three, the continued problem of idleness and responsibility. You can't just sit around and do nothing. God expects you to, to work. God expects you to do something. Go ahead, Ty. Again, that's, that's, that's a... Shotgun effect from Acts to First and Second Thessalonians. What you see overall, though, is you see God showing up, like it well, not showing up. He's always been. He's always been working, and you see the the culmination of all of His work, the redemptive plan of His His plan throughout history, as Ephesians one describes it, and as you see it played out in Acts. You see all of these things. You see Romans, where if you get it, God gets you. Where he says, you're all equal. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need God's grace. We all need that free gift. First and Second Corinthians, you see the problems in the church, the visible, the invisible. You see all of these things. The devoted life of a follower in Philippians, in Colossians, that call to put Christ first above everything else. Put Him first. And in First and Second Thessalonians, that, that drive that if you've received the gospel... You have to pass it on, and you must embody that gospel to pass it on. I've always heard that we should be restoring first century Christianity. I've even heard cries to restore you know, the, the 50s and the 60s, the golden, for some, the golden age, where everything was going right. I guess that's a matter of opinion too, right? <laughs> But you, you know, you look back in, in, the, in the letters that Paul is writing, and you see problems right from the beginning. Restore first century Christianity? I don't know if I'm, I'm on board for that. How about we just live what God tells us to live? Just live a life of a Christian. Just embody the gospel that we say we believe in and pass it on. I'm not going to worry about restoring first century Christianity. Let's just live Christianity today in the flesh. 
I know what you mean when you say that, and I, I agree. We should be more like Christ, more Bible-based, and, and get our instruction from the Bible. That's the only place we should get our instruction from. But at the same time, I'm not holding up the Corinthian church. They had their problems. Ephesians had their problems. Colossians. And I'm sure the congregations in the 50s and the 60s had their problems too. And the congregations today have their problems too. What do we do? We live for Christ every day. And we do the best we can. Through His grace and His mercy. We have that justification. Cross is that basis. Our faith is the means. Today, it's been a rough shot through these, these books. You've seen the gospel in action through Acts and through all of these things. Driving home that we are to be a people of faith. Passing on the mystery of the gospel and revealing that mystery of the gospel to those around us. And we've seen that in action this morning in our sister Michelle. Who heard the message that they heard, responded the way they responded. And now enjoys that same relationship that they enjoyed, that we enjoy. That same timeless message of the gospel. From Acts to today. Still the same. And let's preach it and let's live it. Let's do that today as we stand and as we sing.